Well, it's good to be back. I was away last weekend with about 20 of our singles uh, from Northwake at a retreat in the mountains. Uh, awesome, awesome people. If you haven't connected with some of the many singles who serve in leadership, many of these were serving in leadership at Northwake. They're amazing people. Uh, I went to kind of craft an experience last weekend with the Lord and uh, to share COVID with them all. So it was a really bonding time for us, and they were troopers uh, for sure in that regard. Last week while I was away, Jake taught us about the Apostle Paul and his youth of kind of almost like a getting dressed or a clothing kind of an image of putting off and putting on vices and virtues like garments. In chapter 3 of the book of Colossians, which we're studying, Paul says, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. And Jake made the point last week that even though Paul uses this clothing imagery, he's after something much deeper, not something you put on just for Sundays, not church clothes, right? But but something that you will wear. Yeah, a guy actually wore that in public. Um, Something you wear 24-7. This is who we are, Paul's writing about, and who we are to be becoming all the more. And Jake used the example, he says, more like a caterpillar transforming into a butterfly. Um, Today, I want to stay a little bit more with Paul's garment imagery and try to strengthen it for us a bit in in another way. Um, So back in the early 1600s, the first recorded criminal street gangs were organized in England, in London. And then a couple hundred years later, they began to come to the United States, and the earliest criminal street gangs in the United States were in New York City. Uh, From about the 1820s to 1860s, they were politically aligned with one of two prominent political parties at the time, the anti-immigrant nativist Know-Nothing Party or the Irish immigrant-based Tammany Hall of the Democratic Party. And they wore distinctive, even back in the early 1800s, they wore distinctive gang colors to differentiate themselves from their allies and their rivals and to identify with the gang that they were part of. Uh, There was a gang called the Roach Guards. Uh, They wore a blue stripe on their trousers. The Atlantic Guards and the Dead Rabbits (laughs) wore a red trouser stripe. And of course, in our day, especially in our schools, Our administrators have been very mindful of gang colors for gangs like the Bloods and the Crips as they seek to recruit from among our students in our day. Um, And though public display of gang colors appears to be waning a bit, um, even cities as small and as close as Wilson, North Carolina, post on on their website ways to identify gang colors by gang members by their colors and other identifying signs. Um, the largest being the Crips, whose colors are blue, gray, orange, and purple. The Bloods, whose colors are red, black, and brown. Um, but to wear the color and symbols of the gang is to declare your identity as a member, right? And Paul uses the language of clothing, putting it on and putting it off, similarly in our passage. And last week, uh, he, he gave us a list of sexy attire we dare no longer wear as believers, even using the language of putting those things to death. Put to death, he says, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. 
And then he gave another list we saw last week of attire that has forbidden us as Christ followers, and that is related to our speech. And it's interesting, if you go to that Wilson City page, they don't just identify colors as markers of gangs, but certain phrases that the gangs use to identify themselves. And Paul similarly says, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. So this week, having put off, looked at the put off section last week, this week we look at the put on section, the colors we get to wear, the life we get to live as Christ followers. And that's the thing that I, I want to make sure that you see. We must wear these Christ colors, right? We must live this life, but we also get to live this life. It's a truly beautiful life that Paul is outlining for us. Contrasted with the old life without Christ, there's no comparison. This is the life you want to live. And so as we begin to dig into the colors that we're to wear in Christ, that he himself outfits us with, be mindful of what the Spirit of God might be prompting you this morning regarding one of these colors you need to intentionally be putting on display these days. Is one of these absent from your life's wardrobe? Should it be displayed more prominently? So let those questions kind of serve you as a backdrop as we walk through the passage together. Colossians 3 in your Bibles, verse 12 is where we'll start. Let me pray for us. Lord, be kind to us now. Slow our racing minds. Give us ears to hear the beautiful life that you have for us. Help us walk in it all the more, we pray. Christ, in your name and for your sake today, amen. So Paul, again, has five things in his put-on list. It seems to be an intentional contrast to his double list of five things that were on the put-off list from last week. And he crams all five of those things into verse 12. But before he even gets to those, he starts with a reminder of who we are and why we need to display these colors that he's about to describe. Verse 12, put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And then he lists the five things. But this is the identity these three things that he starts with, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, these are the things, this is the identity that drives the colors that we are to put on to display. And this is where the clothing metaphor is a little bit inadequate because at the same time, um, these three truths about us are also the fuel that enables us to display those colors. So these are colors that represent Christ and are put upon us by Christ. If you are a Christian... Um, a follower of Jesus, then these three things Paul starts with describe who you are in Christ. They're true of you. You are one of God's chosen ones. You are holy and you are beloved by God. That is who you are. I'd like to think about each of those briefly because our grasp of these things, Paul says, underlies and fuels um, the life that he's about to describe that we get to live. So first, you are chosen by God. If you follow Jesus, you are chosen by God. Can you just let that sink in for a minute? 
You were chosen by God. That's your identity. That defines you. He chose you. And why would God choose you? Elsewhere, Paul explicitly makes it plain that God chooses in love. You get a sense for that in the third way that we're described, our identity is described here. He says we are the beloved, right? We're beloved by God. I like that word, beloved. I would use it to describe the person I love most in this world, right? Steph is my beloved. So who is God's beloved? Who could it be that God loves with such love that he chooses them? It's you. You are God's beloved. You and me. To paraphrase Wesley, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should choose even me? But we are chosen. We are beloved, and right in between, there's another descriptor of who we are. We are holy, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This is a thing that we are made by God's choosing of us, in a sense. We are made holy by God's choice of us. That is, we are set apart for God by His choice. And that's near the heart of what it means to be holy, to be set apart for God, for God's purpose and pleasure. We are chosen to be holy set apart for God. Theologian Chris Wright says that we are chosen not just for our own good, as great as that is, but we're chosen for the good of others. We are chosen to be holy and set apart as agents of blessing to others. And he tells this story. He says, it's as if a group of trapped cave explorers choose one of their number to squeeze through a narrow flooded passage to get out to the surface and call for help. The point of the choice is not so that she alone gets saved, but that she is able to bring help and equipment to ensure the rest get rescued. Election, or God's choosing in such a case, is an instrumental choice of one for the sake of many. And so now, Paul says, because you are chosen and holy and beloved by God, we no longer wear the colors and speak the phrases of the old gang, the old life. We now wear the colors of our new King Jesus, the one who chose us to be his beloved and set us apart for him and his good purposes. So let's look now at those five Christ colors in that verse. He says, put them on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Uh, One writer said what Paul is saying here is, deck yourself out in that garment, right? Wear those clothes. And these five we are to put on are a vivid contrast to that double list of fives that we are to put off we saw last week. They're opposites. The old colors tear other people down. These colors are for the good of others. They build people up. And don't miss that. The colors we now wear as Christ followers, we wear for the good of others, especially the church. So Jesus has clothed you with church clothes, not for some kind of Sunday morning fashion show, but in order to serve, strengthen, and bless the church. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 
And as I read that list, does that sound familiar at all to you? Echo any other lists that you've read in the New Testament. How about this one? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It sounds kind of familiar. It's about twice as long, but the essence is the same. They seem to be cut out of the same bolt of cloth, right? And this tells us that our list of five colors is also the work of the Spirit of God in us. It's not something we just buckle up and do on our own, and we'll talk more about that. This list of five, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, is a fruit of the Spirit. And it also sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? He was off the charts compassionate. He was so compassionate that he even had compassion on crowds. In Matthew 14, it says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. When was the last time you were stuck in traffic and what you felt overwhelmingly was compassion? You know? So gladly compassionate that you were honking your horn at the people around you with joy, right? That's what, that's what that's about. And he was ever so kind. It shaped so many of his interactions. It flavored his teaching as he showed us in word and deed who the Father is. Jesus said, love your enemies, do good and lend. Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is grateful. He is kind to the ungrateful rather and the evil and humble. Jesus defines humility in Philippians 2. Being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And meek? Meek? The old King James Version puts it well. Let me read it to you from the King James. It says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. And was he ever patient? Oh my gosh, just the fact that he tolerated those 12 disciples for three years. Um, at one point, Jesus said, oh, faithless and twisted generation. He was talking directly to the 12. How long am I to be with you and bear with you? But he did. He did. He was patient. You add to that his loving tolerance of me for almost 50 years now. Yes, I was an infant convert. Um, his patience is beyond question. So we are being called in this list of five to put on Jesus' own colors, to live like him before a watching world, to treat each other as Jesus does those he loves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Lots and lots of patience as we're about to see. Is there one of those colors, those five, that Jesus is prompting you to put more fully on display this morning in your life? And these five items spill over into two very explicit actions, as Paul writes, two ways that we're to treat one another. In verse 13, having said we are to be patient, he now says, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So the shape these five colors take is lasered into these two related actions towards each other. Again, don't miss it. This is how we treat each other, the people in this room, the people in your small group. Paul says you bear with them. 
and you forgive them. Implicitly, Paul is acknowledging what has been all of our experience. There are people here in the church who are going to aggravate you beyond sanity. The church is going to attract folks that everything in you except the Spirit of Jesus is going to want to avoid. This room is full of people like that. Those folks, the ones who cheer loudly for that team, who vote for that party and like to talk about it a lot. The ones who dress like that, they smell like that, they talk like that, they look like that, they act like that. And Paul says, let me remind you, Paul is speaking with the full authority of God here. Bear with them. Don't avoid them. Don't go off on them. Don't leave the church because of them. Surely, if this means anything, it means we are slow to leave our church family over personal preferences and differences, right? Let me say it again. We are slow to leave our church family, really slow. Like we will put up with a lot before we would ever even entertain the idea of leaving. God put us here together. We should be really, really slow to leave. You know, I hope I'm being clear. You should be slow to leave your church family. I've had people tell me over the years that they were leaving because of the preaching, because of the music, because of the student ministry, because of the children's ministry, because of politics, because of masks, because of service times, because of our facilities. We should be really slow to leave our church over personal preferences and differences. Really, really slow. Because as Jesus bears with us, if we are to wear His colors, we must bear with one another. Bear with one another. Remember the wisdom of the proverb, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is His glory to overlook an offense. We are to be grand overlookers at North Wake. And we're also to be, Paul says, grand forgivers. Even as Christ has forgiven us, he says, if, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Three times the language of forgiveness comes up in that little verse, and the focus is on the one wronged not on the wrongdoer here. When we have a legit complaint against someone, let me give you a helpful rendering of it. No let other people bother you. Somebody give you problem A, let them go. And no stay hoo-hoo. The boss went let you guys go, so then you guys go make ja like him. Make ja like him. Right? Wear his colors. And Jesus wears the color of forgiveness. And so must his people. We must also forgive. We must. There's a guy, a remarkable man named Desmond Tutu. He, he's a bishop in South Africa. He won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work against apartheid. 
In his book, No Future Without Forgiveness, he shares stories and insights from his leadership role in South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. South Africa had been plagued, you probably remember this, from gener for generations by terrible violence between the white ruling minority and the black majority. And once the whites relinquished power and Nelson Mandela became president, the question in need of an answer was clear to them. How does a country with so much pain and violence and division in its past move forward? And Tutu and others established the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as a way forward. The goal was for those who had committed atrocities in the past to come forward and tell the truth, both blacks and whites. But it didn't end there. After confessing the truth, the goal was to bring reconciliation and forgiveness, to break the cycle of hate so the entire nation could move forward. And in one chapter of the book, um, Tutu recounts testimony after testimony of people, both black and white, who came forward to the commission confessing to torture, murder. It was horrific, terrible stories in graphic detail. It's almost impossible to believe that human beings are capable of that kind of evil. The horrors of the crime make this one particular story stand out all the more. Two people who came before the commission were Mrs. Kalata and her daughter, Mrs. Kalata's husband had been an advocate for black South Africans in rural communities, and because of his work, he'd been arrested, detained, and tortured by the police numerous times. But one day, he just disappeared. And on the front page of the newspaper, Mrs. Kalata saw a photograph of her husband's car on fire. She cried so loudly during the hearing, describing the autopsy's report about his torture, that the commission had to be adjourned. When they reconvened, Mrs. Kalata's daughter testified. A number of years had gone by, and she was now a young lady. That's her picture that you see there. She pled with the commission to discover who had killed her father, but she was not crying out because she wanted vengeance or justice. Instead, this is what she said to the commission. We want to forgive, but we don't know whom to forgive. Now those are the colors of Jesus. Can you hear the echo of his very own words on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that has to inform the way we see our very real, very trying, but very small in comparison wrongs that are done to us that must now be forgiven. They must be, because this is his color, right? Listen to these beautiful words from Jet Wren on our blog this week. She writes about church hurt, and she says, what's happened to you here or in other churches? Were you shamed, left alone in your sorrow? Were you given bad counsel or gossiped about? Or maybe you saw others get hurt. You've seen people leave out leave out of petty quarrels. You've seen the church divide over racism, COVID, politics, and scandals. I would bet there are even some among you just on the cusp of leaving. She says, I've been there, and yet God expects us to forgive. Dear Jesus, she says, forgiveness is so hard. I know, he says. It took nails and thorns and a cross on the hill for forgiveness to be possible, but now it is possible. Watch me forgive. I'll show you how. She says, no one has been hurt by the church like Jesus. The people that he created disappointed him, angered him, abandoned him, and killed him. 
His forgiveness was layered in tears and blood and labored breathing. Even when it meant taking the full wrath of the all-righteous Father, he would not lose a single sheep. And when he rose to life, he restored them into his fellowship and promised them life with him forever. He promised never again to look at their sin, to pray for them and bless them. He forgave them before they even knew they needed forgiving. On the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This, she says, was done for you. Are you willing to follow his example, to give your whole heart to it and work toward restoration, to let the sin fall into the sea? Pray for the ones who hurt you, even to bless them, forgive even when they don't ask for it. And so after this starting five and these two defining actions of bearing with and forgiving, Paul now adds one more thing that holds the whole outfit together, love, he says. Verse 14, and above all these, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So this one is supreme. This one matters most. Jesus says that it's caught up in the very most important of commandments. Paul says it keeps you from wasting your life like a clangy symbol. John says it's the great evidence, the great evidence of true faith, love for one, for one another. So church, put this one on, right? Whatever you do, wear this color. The color of love for enemies, for outsiders, and especially for one another. It binds us together, Paul says. And then he closes out our passage with three other things that must, we must put on, so to speak. Um, all have their center in Christ. They too, these last three, act as safeguards and fuel for the life Jesus has for us. Just listen for them as I read the closing verses. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Perhaps you picked up on them, the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, the name of Christ. And first he talks about the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. He's not talking about inner peace here, like peace of mind or a peaceful, easy feeling per the eagles. Um, he's calling us to let the peace of Christ that made disparate, different peoples at the cross rule over us, peace amongst us. And Jake taught us this last week. Verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul is telling us that the unity Christ bought at the cross that made us one here in the church in spite of our differences, we are to let that peace rule over us. And that idea of ruling is often said is umpire language, right? We're to let that peace of Christ be the arbiter of our decisions when we're at odds. Whenever we can, we choose to let the peace of Christ rule, not my preferences. 
Tom Rayner is kind of the, the king of lists in the Southern Baptist world, and he has actually gathered a list of 25 silly things church fight over. Here's a, here's a sampling. There was an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard, a church argument and vote to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed, a fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer, a petition to have all church staff clean-shaven, arguments over what type of green beans the church should serve. Two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee. In one of the churches, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand. In the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend. Members left the church, in the latter example. An argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal. <laughs> and a disagreement over whether the term, using the term, you should use the term potluck instead of pot blessing. <laughs> These allegedly are true. So in little things like these, silly things like these, and things of far greater substance, the peace of Christ must rule at North Wake. And of course, for it to be Christ's peace, it must accord with His Word. But honestly, many of our divisions are about preferences or tertiary matters of doctrine. Let the peace of Christ rule here. Let the peace of Christ rule you here. Next, he talks about dwelling richly in the Word of Christ. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your, Christ, in your hearts to God. Rather, Christ's Word, broadly this would be the Scriptures, more focused it would be the teaching of and by Christ, His gospel. This needs to be where we make our home at Northway. As in the time of Colossians, there are lots of competing saviors out there. Jesus' word must dwell in us richly. And surely that requires that we personally are avid readers of the word. But the sense here is more corporate, more altogether. The word of Christ must be our center here at North Wake. Not the word of Larry or anyone else. Christ's own word contained in the word of God. This we are to teach and admonish to one another. I know some of you are thinking, how could I teach someone the Bible? I have like a the Bible knowledge of a four-year-old. I'm new to this. And I'm like, bingo, we need people to teach four-year-olds. <laughs> we have a place for you to teach. We really do. There's a guy at North Wake who sends out a Bible verse to friends every morning. Every morning, I know it to be a huge encouragement to those who get it. He's just a guy. He's not an elder. He's not on our staff. Pretty good guy. He's just a guy. When a friend gets wobbly, we gently use the Scriptures to help them find their way back on Christ's course. We admonish with the Scriptures, not our opinions. His Word is the basis for course correction here. The interesting thing, though, about this is how Paul sees the teaching and admonishing taking place. He says it takes place with singing. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So one of the key ways we're to teach and admonish one another is singing. And one way that, I, that takes place is right here in this room when we gather for worship. 
I suppose there are other ways. You could like share Spotify playlists and stuff like that. But here, all together on a Sunday morning, we see as we look back in history, the New Testament church gathered and sang in diverse ways to exalt Christ and His teachings. And to do that, our songs must be biblically anchored in the Word, exalting Christ. Not like this. Watch this. I will sing of your love on Sundays. Only sing of your love on Sundays. I will sing of your love on Sundays. Then this feeling is gone by Monday. I surrender some. I surrender some. Jesus, I will give you little. I surrender. I stand amazed at my. I don't know how to stop that. Maybe you can stop it back there. <laughs> now that I've wrecked all those praise choruses for you, um, hey, thanks be to God for a worship pastor who filters our songs through the word of God and true doctrine about God, right, right? And here is my obligatory quote from said worship pastor who could not be silent on this topic. I think God gave us singing. See if you can hear me channeling my inner Daniel Questwell here. I think God gave us singing so that the words we teach and admonish one another with would be carried through a vehicle that gives it the volitional and emotional support that it needs. Your vocal cords can't just say, Jesus died my soul to save. They need the rise and fall of melody and foundation of rhythm and the support of harmony. It needs to be sung, not just said, to communicate the truth in three dimensions rather than just two. Yeah. So that brings me to you non-singers. <laughs> All right. Um, what does this mean for you? The fact that we are essentially commanded here to teach and admonish one another with singing. You know, 85 times, I'm told, in the Old Testament alone, God's people are exalted, exhorted to sing their praises to God. In obedience to the Scriptures, for the sake of the folks in this room, how about you give it a shot? You join in the singing and don't just listen. And I know some of you think that the most edifying thing you can do for the church is to not sing. Um, but hey, let's trust 
that Paul meant what he said and God really did inspire these words, maybe you could start by singing softly. Perhaps God is so good and so sovereign that He can even use your voice and my voice to teach and admonish the church. Try it. You'll like it. And the church will be strengthened by it. The peace of Christ, the word of Christ. And lastly, he says the name of Christ, verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. All that we do, all that we do is for the pleasure and glory of Christ. Personally, that means we, we ponder things like, and what, is what I'm about to say honoring to Christ? Is what I'm about to watch honoring to Christ? Altogether, is what we're about to do, our plans and our schemes, for the glory of Christ at North Wake? Or would we like just a little shout out to North Wake, to my church, the church I attend? Did I say it was my church? We display Christ's colors most beautifully when we are ruled by the peace of Christ, dwell richly in the word of Christ, and do everything in the name of Christ. And Paul says, do it with thankfulness. Three times he mentions thankfulness in this little section. It's rivaled in number only by forgiveness. So, which of these Christ colors do you intentionally need to put on display these days? And how do you do that? Let me say how you do not do it. You do not do it by simply trying harder. By waking up and going through your day chanting the mantra, mantra, I'm going to be kind today like Mr. Rogers. I'm going to be kind today like Mr. Rogers. That is not what we're talking about. It is decidedly not about our striving in our own strength. I love the way Martin Luther put it. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is He. And so there are ways that we can pursue the colors of Christ, not simply in our own striving, but in Christ. And I'll give you three. There are th three resources. These are common. You'll learn nothing new. The question is, are you using these resources? The first is simply prayer. Praying to be more compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient and forgiving like Jesus would put you right at the center of God's will. It's hard to imagine prayers you would be more happy to answer. So today, you might take the color that you are being prompted to, to wear more fully, and you might make it a matter of daily prayer. God, make me more kind. God, make me more kind. It's very different that I'm going to be more kind. Lord, have mercy and make me more kind. Second, Christ's word. Find a scripture about your item and meditate on it. Memorize it. Pray it for your life. Memorize Matthew 9, 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd and prayed that God would grant you a compassionate heart like Jesus. Pick a verse and memorize it. Pray it every day, every day. And when you're done with that one, pick another one. 
The third resource is God's people. Show up here ready to worship God with his chosen ones. This room is full of the chosen ones of God, his beloved people he loves. They're all around you. You are amongst them. And lift your voice and sing to the glory of Christ and be strengthened and strengthen those around you. Engage in those adult classes. Do small group with friends. To be willfully alone in Christ is to fail to put on the Christ colors. These are God-given, God-empowered means of putting off the colors of your old life, your old gang, and putting on the new colors of Christ as king. So again, which color might God have you put on in dependence on him and his good provision for us? Let's, let's take a moment and pray about that, please. Let's pray.